I was talking to Lila Trotman on the phone this evening, and she somehow knew that I was out here uh, speaking at this conference, and she asked if I would convey her greetings to you all. Uh, she's known Max and Sandra for a long, long time, and uh, thinks just the world of uh, what God is doing through your lives, and they're at uh, the University of Oklahoma. So I told her that I'd be more than happy to communicate to her her greetings to you, and uh, she wants you to know that she's praying for you, and uh, is confident that God has some exciting things in store for you in your lives. Follow along as we read Second Timothy, chapter four. I charge thee, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with all long-suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of thy ministry. For I am now ready to be offered and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me, for Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. And Tychicus have I sent to Ephesus. The cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when thou comest, bring with thee, and the books, but especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works. Of whom be thou where also, for he hath greatly withstood our words. At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known, and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salute Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Anisiphorus. Erastus abode at Corinth, but Trophimus have I left at Miletum sick. Do thy diligence to come before winter. Eubulus greeteth thee, and Prudence, and Linus, and Claudia, and all the brethren. The Lord Jesus Christ 
be with thy spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. Let's pray. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, said, But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image, from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And Lord, that's the, the blessed hope that we have here on earth. That as we live our lives, we don't have to live it in humdrum mediocrity but that we can count on the Spirit of God changing us from one degree of glory to another, even into the image of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we understand from this verse and others like it that this comes by exposure to the Word of God, which is as a, a looking glass. Tonight, as we expose ourselves to this book, we pray that that's the process that would take place in our own individual lives. Take the thoughts that you've laid out to Timothy through the hand of the Apostle Paul and tailor-make those words to our own lives that we would become more like Jesus. Amen. As we began 2 Timothy, we, we noted that this was Paul's final word to his son in the faith. Now we come to the last chapter of that final word. And you can almost sense the emotion, the trauma, the, the deep inner feelings that were the Apostle Paul's as he communicates these things that are so important to him. And so it doesn't surprise us at all that the theme of the fourth chapter is the need for diligence. Be diligent, Timothy. In verses 1 through 5, diligence in fulfilling the ministry. 6 through 8, diligence in keeping the faith. 9 through 22, diligence in contending with apostasy. Verses 1 through 5, diligence in fulfilling the ministry. Verse 1. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Now I want you to notice here that he's got a charge. I charge thee therefore. And the basis of the charge is the sure judgment of God. I charge you, Timothy, knowing that God is going to blow the whistle on the world system. The human history, as we now know it, is going to be consummated, and God is going to bring to an end all things. And you and I must appear before him, and he is going to judge both the living and the dead. Knowing this, listen to me carefully. The basis of his charge is the sure judgment of God. Now, the substance of his charge is the need to be faithful to the word. I charge thee, therefore, 
preach the word. Now, it's interesting the progression of thought that takes place here. Jump back up with me to chapter 3 and verse 14. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Here is what he's saying. Make application of the word of God. Verse 15. And that from a child thou hast known the scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. In verse 15, we see the power of the word. Verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. In verse 16, we see the divine origin of the word. Verse 17, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. In verse 17, we see the purpose of the word. Knowing, therefore, that God will judge us on the basis of that word, preach it. Preach the word. Preach it when you feel like it and preach it when you don't feel like it. In season and out of season. Wherever you go, whatever you do, proclaim the word of God. Now note verses 3 and 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Excuse me. You notice here in verses 3 and 4 that the hearers shape the teachers, not vice versa. Now, so often we think to ourselves, it is the preacher who shapes the thinking of the people. Not so, says Paul here to Timothy. The people shape the teacher. Demand creates supply. Here the teachers are not turning away the people. Rather, the people gather around them teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. Teachers who will confirm them in their own presuppositions and prejudices. And boy, how often it is that people pick a church on the basis of the pastor's willingness to tickle their ears and tell them what they want to hear, to confirm them in their preconceived ideas. Now, we talked a little bit about this this morning in terms of personal application. That the average individual goes to church not with the intention of having it change their lives, but more for the entertainment that it might give them. And he says to Timothy, you're to be different. Not so with you. Verse 5, but I want you to watch in all things. Endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of your ministry. Don't shape your message, Timothy, on the basis of what you think they want to hear. You shape your message on the basis of what you know they need to hear. That's what the ministry is all about. And when you do that, you can plan on suffering hardship. 
he says. Because people don't like that. People don't want to be told what they need to hear. That's not the way people are wired together. That kind of preaching has never been popular preaching. But Timothy, plan on suffering hardship and do what you know you're supposed to do. Make full proof of your ministry. Now notice here in verse 5, he says, do the work of an evangelist. And I want to light down on that for a moment. Do the work of an evangelist. And the reason why I want to light down on it for a moment is doing evangelism is not easy. Rare is the individual who enjoys confronting people with the gospel. Now, I've been in the ministry for a number of years. And rare have I met the man who says, you know, I really feel that God has gifted me in preaching, I mean, in, in evangelizing people and leading people to Christ. Most people tell me, well, you know, I, I'm really not much of an evangelist. What God has really gifted me in is helping people to grow in the Christian life. Well, I think that what God is helping, has, has gifted me to do is to help people to become disciple-makers or to become spiritual leaders or, or to counsel them in their problems. Anything but evangelism. And the reason for that is evangelism is tough. And if we can talk ourselves into believing that God wants us to do something else, how much easier that is. Of course evangelism is tough. It's tough because you can count on being rebuffed. You can count on people rejecting you. You can count on people holding you personally responsible for the message. So that not only do they reject the message, they reject you in the process. It's hard. It's never been otherwise. And it never will be otherwise. But gang, evangelism is the name of the game. Our job as ambassadors of Jesus Christ is to depopulate hell and populate heaven. That's what it's all about. We're to go out there and break down the gates of hell and set free the prisoners. That's evangelism. You can plan on enduring hardness as you do it. You can plan on rejection. I know it's tough. It seems to me that the cutting edge of any successful ministry has got to be evangelism. Now, I personally have taken a little poll, a little survey through the ministries that I've had the privilege of kind of looking in on a little bit. You show me a ministry that is strong in evangelism, and it may be fraught with all other kinds of weaknesses, still I will show you in that ministry one in which there is life and a dynamic esprit de corps. You show me a ministry in which the cutting edge of evangelism has been blunted, and I will show you a ministry that is anemic and is crumbling at the seams, irrespective of whatever else you got going in it. Evangelism is dear to the heart of God. Evangelism is an essential ingredient in the work of the ministry. 
Gang, never con yourself into believing that God doesn't want you to do evangelism. I've often thought in the Bible that our Lord and Savior was the friend of publicans and sinners. Let me ask you tonight. How many non-Christians, how many publicans and sinners consider you to be their close friend? Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not asking how many non-Christians do you know. I'm asking how many non-Christians would say that you are one of their closest friends. That's the key to evangelism. The building of meaningful relationships with the uncommitted. But what so often happens, gang, is that we interpret separation from the world system to mean separation from worldly people. And so we retreat into our Christian ghetto and the only time we venture out is to throw a handful of tracts into the dormitory hoping that somebody will pick one up and read it and get converted and join us in our Christian ghetto. Now that obviously is a caricature. Hopefully that's not what's happening to you. But let me encourage you. Do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of your ministry. Diligence in fulfilling the ministry, says Paul, is much on my heart for you. Secondly, diligence in keeping the faith, verses 6 through 8. Now I want you to notice verse 6. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. There are two words here that are pregnant in meaning, really great words that give you an idea of how Paul viewed death. The first word is this word offered. I am now ready to be offered. Now this word is the same word that they use in the Old Testament for a drink offering. It's the idea of pouring out a drink offering. I am now ready as a drink offering to be poured out before the living God. And what Paul is suggesting to us here in this chapter is that though he's about to die, the Romans are not going to take his life. He is going to give his life to God in a final act of worship. Now notice how confident he is at that. In verse 18, he says, And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work, and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to, be whom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. No Roman centurion is going to lob my head off except to be by the perfect will of God. God alone shapes my destiny, says Paul, not man. And so it is in all of our lives. You see, gang, because God is in control, you can lie awake nights dreaming of ways to hurt me and miss every time because God shapes my destiny. So here's Roman in, there's Paul in the Roman prison in chains, about ready to go to his death, and he says, friend, don't sweat it. Don't worry about me. Don't weep over the fact that I'm about to die. Because my death is an offering. It is an act of worship 
that comes at the close of my life. Now, the other word that he has here that's so rich in meaning in verse 6 is the word departure, and the time of my departing or departure is at hand. Now, that's the same word that they used back in those days for breaking camp. A departure took place in the morning when the soldiers got up and folded the tent and got all the gear together and moved on to the next campsite. He says, that's what I'm going to do. Death is not the end for me. Death is simply breaking camp. All I'm going to do is fold up this tent I've been living in, and I'm going to move on to better ground. That's how Paul viewed death. Not the end. Just another step and a great adventure with God. In verse 7 he says, I fought a good fight. I finished my course, I have kept the faith. He says, I finished the course that God gave me. God put me on a track, I ran it, I've crossed the finish line, no reason to hang around anymore anyway. I'm ready to go. Periodically through the Bible you read men saying, I finished what God asked me to do. As a matter of fact, Jesus said that. Remember that in the Garden of Gethsemane? He says, I finished the work you gave me to do. There's nothing more important than for us to be able to look God the Father in the eye as we cross the threshold of death and say with the Apostle Paul, Oh God, I finished the work you gave me to do. So I ask you tonight, if God were to blow the whistle on you this evening and you had to go and stand before him would you be able to look him in the face and say, Lord, all that you had on your heart for me in my life, I did. Or does that idea kind of fill you with panic and you say, good grief, Lord, hold off just for a little bit longer. Man, I got a whole bunch of loose ends to hang up, take care of. But don't blow it on me yet. Ooh, man. Paul said, I finished the work that God gave me to do diligence in finishing the race. Verse 8 says, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. Now in verse 1, we see the fact of judgment. Here in verse 8, we see the reward of judgment. Paul says, I know that judgment is certain, but it doesn't scare me. I'm looking forward to it because I know that my reward will be a crown of righteousness. Now, in verse 14, he talks about judgment also. And he talks about the reward of judgment negatively viewed. The Lord reward him according to his works. Now, that's enough to make a man break out into a cold sweat. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil the Lord reward him according to his works. Good grief. If I were Alexander, I'd say, no, 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 Paul, you got that wrong. Grace, that's what I want. The last thing I want is to be rewarded according to my works. Now, whether or not the judgment is going to be viewed positively, like it will for the Apostle Paul, or negatively, 
like it is here for Alexander the coppersmith, is dependent upon you. You make that decision. You shape the judgment that you're going to have. God decides that there's going to be a judgment. You're going to decide what kind of a judgment it's going to be. So you can end up like the Apostle Paul, or you can end up like Alexander. It's your decision. And it's all dependent upon whether or not you fight a good fight, whether or not you keep the faith. Then in verses 9 through 22, he talks about diligence in contending with apostasy. Now this morning, we talked in chapter 3 about a problem within the church. And the problem within the church were imposters. These were people who, from within the ranks, had a form of godliness but denied the power thereof. They were imposters. They came around with a pretense. They pretended to be representatives of the living God, but the fact of the matter is they were not. They were wolves in sheep's clothing, to use the words of our Lord Jesus. And they led astray many. Now this evening we find a different kind of a problem. Notice the problem as it's mentioned in verse 10. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed unto Thessalonica. Verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. Verse 16, at my first answer, none of the brothers stood with me. They all forsook me. The problem here is not impostors. The problem here is apostasy. And there's a difference. You see, these guys that he's talking about here in the fourth chapter were part of his hardcore team. These were men who were with him in the battle. These were guys who had gone into combat with him but then when things got tough, they abandoned ship. That's apostasy. A man who makes his commitment to God and then turns away. So, within the church, there are two problems. There is the problem of being an imposter, and there's a problem of being apostate. Now, I want you to notice all through this section here that Paul kind of gives this roll call of what happened to all the guys. He says, Luke's with me. Titus has gone to Dalmatia. Crescens to Galatia. Tychicus, he's over in Ephesus. And he goes through all of these and talks about it. The guys that make it, the guys that don't, the fact that when he went to his trial, nobody stood with him. And he reviews all of this. Now, why does he do that? He does it, I believe, in order to point out to Timothy the tremendous cost involved in being a disciple. We began by pointing out that when hardship and difficulty come, the ranks thin out. And here we see it again. When it starts costing to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you look around and you find, man, not, not, not many people around anymore. I wonder what happened to them all. They conveniently have other plans. Now, some make it. Luke's with me. There are other people that have made it, but not very many. It's tough to have to stand alone, but notice Paul's attitude in verse 17. 
Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me that by me the preaching might be fully known, that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Yea, and the Lord shall deliver me from evil work, every evil work, and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Now, see, here he is, he's abandoned, he's all by himself. Now, is he sitting there crying, stewing in his juice? Not at all. He is greatly encouraged. He says, even though everybody else abandoned me, God stood with me. And he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. What a tremendous example for us. He took these negative circumstances and he refused to become discouraged by them. He rather viewed them positively. He said, ah, oh, with everybody gone, it affords me a unique opportunity depend upon God alone. Man, praise the Lord. He'll stick with me. And he was giantly encouraged and positive in his spirit over it. I'm reminded of David at Ziklag. I think that's how you pronounce it, isn't it, Max? Ziklag, 1 Samuel chapter 30 and verse 6. Turn with me in that for a moment. I haven't had you turn out of first or 2 Timothy yet. So let's turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 30 and verse 6. Now David had been out of the camp and while he was out of the camp, the Amalekites came up and raided it. Took everything they owned. All of his mighty men lost their wives, their children, and all their possessions. And the reason it happened was that David had taken the mighty men, had not left adequate guard there to handle the family, thinking that everything was going to be all right, not anticipating this. They come back and everything's gone. Now don't you know those men were a little upset. These were his mighty men. These were uh, no wallflowers. These were guys who knew how to fight. They were what you'd call real athletes. And they're angry. And they're standing around David and saying, Now, tell me once again, David, why does this happen? Explain to me just one more time why it was that you allowed this as our leader to take place. And they were madder than hot. And what does David do? It says in verse 6, And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him. Because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. <laughs> but get this. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Isn't that great? When you get into a position where the going gets rough, that's when you want to take stock of the inheritance that you have in the Lord your God. And so how does Paul end his epistle? He says, The Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Grace be with you. Amen grace. Interesting. He began with grace. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. He continues in grace. 
And thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And he ends in grace. Grace be with you are his final words. What he's saying here is the life of discipleship has got to begin, continue, and end in grace. Now, Timothy, I want you to remember. I want you to remember your heritage. I want you to remember your gifts. I want you to remember Onesiphorus. Timothy, I want you to be committed. I want you to be committed to the vision. I want you to be committed to Jesus Christ. I want you to be committed to truth. I want you to be committed to your own character and the character of others. Buddy, listen, I want you to be a learner. I want you to learn from bad examples, from good examples, from the scriptures. But learn, Timothy. I want you to be diligent. Diligent in fulfilling your ministry. Diligent in keeping the faith. Diligent in contending with apostasy. Now that's a big order I'm giving you, buddy. And the only way you can pull it off is to rely on the grace of God. So the letter seems a little heavy to you, buddy. And it is. Just appropriate a little bit more of God's all-sufficient Grace. Grace, friend. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Let that grace be with you. Amen. Let's pray together for a few moments. And as we pray, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed and our hearts open, I'm going to ask that you take a little spiritual inventory, as it were, in your own heart, in light of what Paul has been saying to us in these brief four chapters. So why don't we just pray and, and talk it over with the Lord, and I want you to evaluate where you are and maybe what God would have you to do in the way of personal application. Let's pray. As we continue in a posture of prayer, the thought occurs to me that just as in the days of the Apostle Paul, so also maybe here this evening there are those sitting here who are impostors. You've learned the language, you've gone through the act, but you've never come to a place in your life where you have made a commitment, a personal commitment to own Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. I'm sure that in an audience this large that there's some like that. Or maybe it's not that you're an imposter. Maybe you don't make any pretense at all of being a Christian tonight. In either case, as you think and meditate on it, the Spirit of God is telling you 
that you're not one of his. And right now, the Holy Spirit is standing at the door and asking for entrance into your life. If that is so, I'm going to ask that right now, in the quietness of your heart, you open your life to Jesus Christ and invite him in. Simply pray, Lord, I recognize that I'm not one of yours. May know the language, may have gone through all the forms, but I'm not one of yours. And right now I declare spiritual bankruptcy. I open the door of my life and invite you in and ask you to become my Lord and my Savior. And then it may be that there are some of you sitting here this evening who, though you know God, you know that if the price tag ever really is brought to light, you'd become apostate. It's fun being part of the group. It's fun really hanging in. But down deep in your soul, you know that Jesus is not Lord of your life. There are areas that you've been hanging on to that you haven't really been willing to give up. You've been unwilling up to now to flee youthful lusts, for example. Or it may be that you've been unwilling to get involved in learning from the scriptures or getting out into the battle and confronting people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your commitment to the Savior has been peripheral. And the Holy Spirit during these days has been convicting you of the fact that though he's come into your life and become your Savior, you've really shut him out from being Lord. And if that's been true in your life, I, I ask right now that you'd square that away. That you'd come clean, admit it to him, ask his forgiveness, and surrender. That's the most important part. Surrender your will to Him. He'll give you the power. He'll give you the grace. He wants your cooperation. Now, if you've done this this evening, either you've opened your heart for the first time and received Jesus as, Lord, as the Savior of your life, or if you've made him your Lord, while the rest of us are continuing in prayer, I'm going to ask that you stand right where you are in acknowledgement of that fact. And then in a few moments, we're all going to stand and close with a, a word of prayer. But if you would, right where you are, as we remain in prayer with you, why don't you just stand in acknowledgement of the fact that you have, in fact, done business with God and are sincere in the commitment you've just made.
Why don't we all stand right where we are? Father, tonight we want to thank you for your grace. The grace that is greater than our sin. The grace that reaches down to where we live and helps us to become not only your children, but your disciples. We want to thank you. Lord, thank you for allowing us the privilege of being involved in your ministry, of, of having a slice of the action, of getting involved in that which lasts forever. Thank you for that, Father. It excites us. And tonight we pray that you'd help us to learn in a way that will make a permanent difference in our lives from this last will and testament of Paul to Timothy. We want to commit the whole thing to you and our lives to your glory. With thanksgiving, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Let you share it with somebody. I don't know who your friend is or counselor or buddy. Maybe it's Chuck Madden or Fred Luke or Sandra or Max or somebody. But if, you, if you'd share it with them and let them know that you've, you've driven some stakes before the living God tonight. I know they'd be delighted to hear you express it. Would like to pray with you a little bit more and, and help you to put some shoe leather on it. And uh, I'll look forward to uh, getting back together with you for our final session tomorrow morning. Thank you very much.